I told the first service, and I feel the same way this morning at this service too, that part of the service is like a family reunion, isn't it? It's good to be able to, to, to say hello and to be together. If you would, open up your Bible. Um, join me in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, take the one in front of you out and open it up. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, take the one in front of you out and keep it. That is our gift to you um, so that you have God's word everywhere you go. You'll see in my Bible, it's right toward the end. I love the table of contents, by the way, in the Bible because there are a lot of books and books like First Peter are so short that you'll miss them often. And so it's sometimes helpful to find what page it is. But we're going to be starting in chapter 4 of First Peter, beginning at verse Seven. So would you join along with me? Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, each love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was growing up for the majority of my childhood years, we lived in a neighborhood that was surrounded by acres and acres of woods. And, and one of my favorite pastimes was to just lose myself exploring those woods. To borrow from the title of this series that we're getting into, this was my airplane mode before there was an airplane mode. It was my way of just disconnecting from everything. And I knew the woods so well. I could tell you where every fallen tree was. I could tell you where the valleys were that the rainwater would collect in. And I knew where the best crab apples could be found. Now, now I don't think, just for the record, that anybody likes eating crab apples. Maybe some of you do. They're very tart and sour. They're good to cook with. But when you're a kid like I am, and you're free in the woods, eating a, a, a crab apple feels like taking a snack right out of God's pantry. I also remember, though, that I didn't eat too many of them. And it wasn't because they were bitter. It was because so often I would take one from the tree that looked good and I would take a bite and I would find that I am not the first living organism to eat this apple. <laughs> it's the proverbial um, worm, right? And, and I, I kind of choked on that because what you probably don't know, I was reading about this a little bit, is that the most common parasite, the worm that eats apples, crab apples or regular apples, is not even a worm at all. It's actually the coddling moth. 
And, and here's how they work. So the adult moth will, will lay eggs and, and lay them in several places. The most insidious place is that they'll lay them close to the fruit clusters on the tree that are going to grow into the apple. And what happens is the larva comes and, and it climbs itself into the very young fruit through the same place that the flowers are blooming off of that fruit. And I think, man, if that is not an illustration, right? We often talk about sin and the, the mistakes that we make is, is grabbing to have our legitimate needs made in illegitimate ways. And so it's, it's in this place of supposed beauty that this, this parasite climbs in and on the inside it grows by eating at the fruits until that fruit falls off the tree rotten in the fall and it leaves it to grow into an adult moth. And the, the worst thing about this for us is you can't tell when you're looking at the apple on the tree which one's good and which one's been infested. There's only one way to truly know and that is to cut it in half and see what's growing inside. And that's, that's essentially what we're going to do. For the next six weeks. That's, that's what the heart is behind this sermon series that we're calling Airplane Mode. And if you have a cell phone, chances are you know what that is, right? You've seen this little icon on your phone. Everybody has it. And it, what, when you press it, what it does is it shuts down all methods of communication. It, it turns off the 5G. It turns off Wi-Fi. It turns off Bluetooth. And it does so so that the signals don't cause a distraction. And I know that there's probably at least one other nerd in the room just like me, and so you probably research this and go, so does it really cause airplanes to crash? And what you'll learn is that it doesn't, okay? If it did, then I would tell you next time you're on a plane, if somebody's a rebel, tackle them, right? But that's not what it is, and yet it's still the rule to turn your plane on airplane mode, especially when your plane is taking off and landing. And there's two reasons why we still do this. The first one is it's to everybody's advantage, to the passengers, to the attendants, to the pilots, that these devices are quiet so that they don't cause a distraction during those very important moments of a plane ride. But the second reason that it's important to turn your phone on airplane mode is if you're a rebel, and I'm not going to ask you to, to admit this, but if you're the guy that says, I don't need to turn my phone off, then what ends up happening is you end up doing a disservice to yourself. Because what happens to the phone is your, your airplane ends up, if you're flying in a 747, it ends up ascending to 35,000 feet, right? And it ends up flying at about 500 miles per hour, which eventually causes your phone to frantically search and grab cell phone tower signals along the way that as soon as it finds, it lets go of, and it can't actually communicate over any of it. Your phone just frantically searches for signal. It's constantly running around, and by the time your plane lands, you're left with a dead phone. And I think, man, how often does my life look like that? <laughs> how often am I frantically grasping at the wrong things that aren't giving me what I need and I, too, am left with nothing? 
And so we're going to start this new year, and we're going to learn how do we turn on airplane mode in our life? How do we turn airplane mode on in our physical life, in our mental life, in our spiritual world? And we're going to do this with some help from uh, a book by author and, and pastor Rich Philotus. Um, the book's title is Good and Beautiful and Kind. It was just published last year, 2022. And the subtitle is Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. And in the introduction, Rich uh, quotes a poem that inspired him to write this book in part. Its, its title is Tired by Langston Hughes. And I want to read it to you now. It goes like this. I am so tired of waiting, aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let's take a knife and cut the world in two and see what the worms are eating at the Rhine. I love this. I think it's, it's perfect for the moment that we're living in right now. And, and I, I say that because on the surface, right, there's, there's clearly so much goodness in God's creation. Life itself is a gift, Right? And whether you see that gift in, 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 in things like, like beautiful sunsets or, or grandchildren or, or crabapple trees as you're walking through the woods, there's so many glimpses of goodness in life. And at the same time, would we not all agree that as we look out into our world and even into ourselves, there are worms that are eating away at what God has deemed and made good? And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to enter airplane mode and we're going to explore for the next six weeks the worms. We're going we're gonna to explore that first of all in the first two weeks by, by turning off everything. And, and what happens when you turn on, here's the reason why some people don't turn on airplane mode. This is the reason why I don't want to turn on airplane mode when I'm on an airplane is, is because when you turn off your phone, which let's just be honest, as much of a communication device as it is, it is probably more so a distraction for a lot of us, right? It distracts us from the things we don't want to think about. And so when you turn your phone off, what inevitably happens is, is your mind starts going to worry and guilt and shame and regret and fear. And I want to tell you that that's normal. That's, that's normal. But we need to go there. We need to go there, slow down enough to, to see those things, not to be morbid about them or self-deprecating, but to begin to name and understand what is going on underneath the surface. We're too busy we're going to start this year just the way we ended the last year if we're not intentional. We're, we're too busy. We need to slow down and see what is it that eats at our core so that we can invite God's hope into those places. And so that's what we're going to be doing today, and that's what we're going to do next week. And that's going to coincide with the first two chapters in this book. So if you're following along with us, that's what we're going to be talking about for the first two weeks. And then once we know what is at the core, what are the worms, then the next weeks are going to be about learning what can we do to invite God into those places and make us whole, make us good and beautiful and kind the way God has intended for life and creation to be to begin with. And there's going to be some very practical steps that we're going to walk through together, ways that we can pray, some of the contemplative tradition. This is really the heart of the series that we're in, airplane mode. We're going to, we're going to find peace 
that, that God promises to us goes beyond our circumstances and our limited understanding. And so that's the second part. And then the end of the series, we're going to focus on how if we identify the worms, if we slow down enough, and if we learn these rhythms and ways in which we can be in touch with the God who brings hope to the things that make us feel so hopeless, then what can God do through us to bring the good and the beautiful and the kindness of God to the world and to the people around us because the world is fractured. And let me tell you, God's hope is found in you because God's presence is found in you and me. He wants us to share these gifts with the world. And so does that, does that sound like a good journey to start off 2023 with? It's a lot, but that's why we're doing all sorts of different things and we're going to take it nice and slow. And so today, we're going to cut open the apple. That's, that's step one. Our reading is in 1 Peter 4. And I thought this was a particularly fitting passage to start the, the second Sunday of the new year off with. I, I thought, man, if, if, there's, if there's a passage that communicates hope, that's got to be this one. So let's, let's, let's read it again. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Nobody's feeling hopeful. <laughs> I feel like a lead balloon just dropped in the room. Doesn't that make you feel hopeful? The end of all things is near. Aren't those encouraging words to begin this Sunday with? Uh, last Sunday, if you missed church, we had the blessing of Bill Gross with us. Um, he is a seminary student, and he's up at Christ Church in Mequon, and he shared a great message on New Year's resolutions. Um, if you missed it, go online, listen to it. It was a really great and encouraging message, and he reminded us that really the, the crux of it is that there's really only one resolution that's important, and that is to follow Jesus. And, and we studied a very familiar and comforting passage of Jesus' own words in Matthew 6 where he tells us not to worry, right, about things like what to eat and what to drink and what to wear. And then he tells us what we should do, verse 33, we should seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all the things that we worry about, the things that we need, will be given to us. If we just start there, they will be given to us as well. And so back to Peter, Peter says, the end is near. And this is actually kind of jumping into a, a greater context. So if you look at the verses before, you'll see what Peter's referring to is the second coming of the one who promises that God is going to meet all of our needs. It's the second coming of Jesus. That's the end that he's telling us is near. And when Jesus returns, he is going to judge the world. And he's going to judge the world by God's standards, not our own. And that day is coming soon. If we learn one thing by reading through the entire New Testament, it is that it will happen at any moment that we should be watching and waiting for this to come. That the end being near should inform everything we do. And so how do we live as if this is true. That's what the next verses are going to tell us. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. You know the phrase, there's no atheists in foxholes? 
That's what comes to my mind when I read a verse like this. If you know the end is imminent, if you know it's near, everything you say and do is going to be intentional, isn't it? Everything you do, it'll be calculated, it'll be humble, it will be prayerful. And this is not the end of his instructions. It's just the beginning. Verse 8, he says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And friends, sin is what Jesus is going to return to judge. He's going to judge the worms. And so it's helpful for us to begin with a working definition of what that sin is. And, and Volotus helps us this, with this in the first chapter of his book. He shares a different definition of sin than many of us grew up with and, and reminds us to begin with that, that sin is breaking God's commands, right? Like that's probably what most of us think about. But then he reminds us that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said that the greatest commandment is to what? Does anybody know? Love, right? Love God and love others as you love yourself. It's all based on love. And so in the very first chapter, Rich says this. He says, if the greatest commandment given by Jesus is rooted in love, then the greatest sin, and perhaps all sin, must in some way be the rejection of of this command. He says it more simply than even that on the first page of the first chapter. Sin is a failure to love. Sin is a failure to love. And, and, and I think about that and I think, man, does that not just blow your mind and blow the cap off your definition of sin? I, I grew up Roman Catholic. And, and do we have any other Roman Catholics in the room? Okay. So one very helpful tradition in the Roman Catholic Church is, is they have a formal tradition in the way in which we confess our sins. Um, even Protestants are called. It's biblical to confess our sins. But in the Catholic Church, you would go to the priest. And I remember doing this as part of the, the catechism class that we took on Wednesday nights. And as part of that, we were always told, you're going to go to confession today, and so you need to think about your sins, right? And so I, I don't know about those of you that grew up this way, but when I did it, it was always this feverish, like, okay, shoot, what did I do wrong? Like, I had to have something, right? And, and so oh, I, I hit my brother, I ate three cookies, I was only supposed to eat one. Like, like these are the kinds of things that you think about, right? And, and yet that is a very limited definition of sin. What if the question that you're asking instead is, is how many moments over the last day or week or month or year have I failed to love someone? Have I failed to love God? Have I failed to love others? Have I failed to love myself. Sin, ultimately, at its core, is a failure to love. And we have to start there. Because if we begin with sin as a definition of legalism, following all the rules, as if, as if the way in which heaven and earth are all just balanced based on whether you and I can follow the rules well enough, what that ends up leading to are questions like, am I good enough to go to heaven? Have you ever wondered that? And, and let, me, let me be really encouraging to you this morning. You're not good enough to go to heaven. You're not. And I'm not. And nobody is. That's actually the point. Jesus is good enough. 
He's the only one that's good enough. And his judgments is that he is going to come and judge you and you and me based on what he accomplished for us, not our shortcomings. The gospel is that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you immediately get credit for his perfect life instead of your imperfections. You get credit for his death on the cross that has paid the price for every moment that you've ever fallen short, for the moments you're thinking about falling short right now, and for the moments that you haven't even thought about making mistakes in the future. It's dangerous to limit our our understanding and definition of sin to, to legalism because what ends up happening is if you don't see the grace of God in the midst of it, we start to inevitably start to think about not just earth operating on this, I've got to earn this thing, but we start to think about heaven that way as well. We start to imagine that heaven operates by the same rules as earth, that we've got to earn our own way. And I want to suggest that there's rule breaking in heaven. But if you look at the beautiful imagery of what eternity is made to be and what it will be for us as we read it throughout scripture, the vision is not a heaven of rule following. That isn't the ultimate vision of heaven, as if heaven is this cosmic boarding school in the sky, that we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be given our uniform and we're all going to be walking in straight and narrow lines. The vision of heaven, the substance of heaven is deeper than that. What's most important in heaven, what makes heaven heaven itself is love. And nobody breaks the rules in heaven, but it's not because that's the point. It's because it's out of love that they don't break the rules. Psalm 136 says this, Give thanks to the God of heaven. It's his love that endures forever. What this is not saying is that that love is one of several attributes of God, as if God is attractive and funny and loving. That's not what this is saying. God is love. Love is who God is, and love is what is present everywhere God goes, which is everywhere. And I don't need to tell you that it is love that matters the most when the end is near. I mean, isn't that how you feel when your end is near? Isn't it really all ultimately about love? And this doesn't cancel out anything else. It doesn't cancel out God's heart for justice. This doesn't cancel out the Ten Commandments. If you boil those commandments down, are they not all rooted in love? If you're coveting what your neighbor has, are you not failing to love your neighbor? If you're living in pride and, and gluttony, are you, not, are you not failing to love yourself and love the God who made you and promised to provide for all of your needs? All of this is ultimately subservient to love. I think about justice, right? Like, like my heart, like anybody's, it, 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 it's broken when I see uh, injustice and I see uh, people who, who are, are, are victims of injustice. But when I think about the way in which my heart breaks the most, it's when my loved ones are the ones that are victims, right? Like if my kids come home from school and, and somebody has, has done something to them, maybe some kid on the playground has hurt them or, or they've been some kind of a victim of injustice, I really care and I care because I love them. Same is, is flipped around when, when I'm the victim of an injustice. 
It hurts a lot more when it's somebody that I'm close to, when love is involved in that person that I love hurt me. Isn't it true that those who are the closest to us hurt us the most? It's the way that it seems to work. And the reason for all of that is love. See, this is the way God works. The same is true for God. If, if we cut open the apple and we look at the core of what is eating away at our fractured world, if we look at the root of every injustice, every sin, every mistake, everything that you look out into the world, at the news, in your family, and your own heart is broken, what you will find is a lack of love. Look at what the prophet Micah says, and you probably heard these verses before. He who has shown you, O mortal, what is good, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, when Jesus came along after the prophet Micah, he he didn't undo all of these requirements. Justice and mercy and humility are attributes of love. They serve love. They flow out of love, and love is the substance of God, and God is the substance of heaven, and the good and beautiful and kindness of heaven, God's kingdom that we seek, Matthew 6.33, can be tasted on earth every single time we tap into love. And without love, none of our efforts matter. Because what does 1 Peter 4.9 say? Love covers a multitude of sin. Nothing except for love does that. And it's instinctive that we know this. I, I, was, I shared this at the last service. just came to my mind. My 15-month-old son, Grayson, already knows this. At 15 months old, he's just like his parents. He's out making lots of mistakes <laughs> because, because that's what we do, right, as we are born into the world. But here's what he started to do very recently. When we challenge him on something, if he, if he pushes us or he grabs something he's not supposed to, he does something he knows that he did was wrong. Here's what we'll do. We'll pick him up and he will kiss us. Because even though he can't talk, he already knows that love covers sin. Do you see how that works? Love covers sin. I talked to somebody at the last service. I shared that story. They said, even my dog knows that. When they do something wrong, they're wagging their tail and licking me. Like, this is the way in which God has created the world. And there's tangible ways in which we can live this practically out in relationship. And so Peter continues, verse 9, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If the end truly is near, our love will be translated to sharing hospitality. It'll be translated into not complaining. Are there not so many things that if you knew the end was near, you wouldn't care about anymore? You wouldn't complain about. That you would use whatever gift that you've been given by God to serve others. And I I'll never forget this, and I, I, told, I told Jane Fry, who's sitting here, that I was going to share this story as part of the message a couple of years ago. Jane's husband of 65 years, was it? Is that how many years? Um, he, he passed away. And if, if you knew, many of you knew Gib, you knew that he was meticulous 
about taking care of his home. And Jane's smiling. Um, I, I mean, whether it was the way in which you, you, you cut the, um, you trim the bushes or, or mow the lawn, he had a way of doing all of those things. And I'll never forget that it wasn't long before he passed away. He was on hospice and he was at home. His family shared with me, and he was barely strong enough to be getting out of bed, but they found him up on a ladder changing the batteries in the smoke alarms. And I remember hearing that, and I thought to myself, why does somebody change the batteries in the smoke alarms when they're on hospice? And then I realized it wasn't about the smoke alarms. It was about love. It was about love for his wife. It was about love. The end was near, and he didn't want to stop serving those he loved. It actually accelerated his desire to serve them. And so Peter's warning is sobering on one level, right? The end is near. And yet on another level, we know the end is near. And he invites us into living as if the end is near right now because it is. It is. Jesus himself said nobody knows the day or the hour, but we do know how we will be judged when Jesus returns. And it's going to all be based on love. Therefore, verse 11, if anybody speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God in the Greek. This suggests the same idea as the Holy Scriptures, as if to tell us that no longer are God's words confined to the pages of our Bibles, but that they should be coming off of our lips in every word that we say. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever Amen. Jesus gave us one command. And it doesn't replace all the other commands. It embodies them. It fulfills them. And that command is to love. And that's it. But it's also everything, right? Love is enough to fill a room. Love is enough to fill all of eternity with. And so the challenge for us is if that's true, then in so many moments of our lives, why is it not enough for us today? Why do we find ourselves grasping instead at the worms, at pride, at fleeting things, treasures that are going to be destroyed by moth and rust, stuff that we're going to leave behind? Why do we grasp at the worms? Can we make love enough for us today? Can we be a people who are striving to put love before all things? Division, politics, disagreements, ways in which people have wronged us, ways in which we look at the world differently. This is our mission, is it not? It's our mission statement as a church, and it's not, it's not original. This is not unique. This is just what Jesus said in the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. But say it with me, because it's our mission as St. John's. Love God and love others in a way that brings hope to the world. Here's the thing that this doesn't mean. It's not our programs. It's not our building. It's not our sermons. It's not our music. It's not our Bible studies. None of those things by themselves will bring hope. Only love will bring hope. 
And I've been hearing it ringing in my ears the entire time I've been preaching this morning. Just look at 1 Corinthians 13. Those of you who have studied that passage, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul says that you can do all sorts of spiritual things. And if you don't have love, you can speak in tongues. You can be doing all sorts of stuff. And without love, all it is is clanging symbols. And let me tell you, a couple of years ago, somebody bought my kids, my young kids, clanging symbols. <laughs> if there is anything that is the opposite of the sound of love, <laughs> it is that right there. Got to remember who it was so I can buy them some clanging symbols too. Now, if our programs and our building and our sermons and our music and our Bible studies are infused with love, that's powerful, right? That's the purpose. That's why we're here. Not because any of these things are things in and of themselves to be an end, but that they become a means to an end so that we might learn how to love and that we might love one another in the midst of these things themselves. Because the truth is, anything in life can become a means for love. Anything at all. Even sin. And here's what I mean when I say that. Jesus saw your sin. He saw my sin. He saw our shortcomings. He saw the things that come to the surface. When we turn off the cell phones and we turn them into airplane mode, he saw our guilt and our brokenness and our shame and our guilt and mistakes. And instead of condemning us, he used our predicaments to love us. And it's not because he accepts the brokenness of sin that we find ourselves in. Quite the opposite, actually. It's out of his love that he is driven to take the consequences of all of it upon himself by dying on the cross. Sacrificial love for us. And friends, if we call ourselves Christians... And we believe that Jesus has done that for you and for me. Can we not go out into the world and do that for others? Can we be willing to let our guard down? Jesus washed feet and he ate with disciples that would betray him. He even kissed the one that would have him arrested. In this world that is so divided, can we walk out and turn the other cheek? Can we pay for the injustice of others and do so not because we have to, but because we love. Friends, that's what God did for us, and it is the very beginning of a good and beautiful and kind world that He is creating for, through you and through me right now. And it begins today. And so if it's your desire for this to become true for you, would you join me right now as we pray? And I'm going to take a prayer straight out of this book. This is the book that Rich, this is the prayer that Rich begins his book with. And so let us use this prayer as well to begin our journey together. Lord God, it is your desire for us to be formed by your love. And so we pray that you would give us grace not, not to live this perfectly, but God, that we might wrestle with it faithfully. 
that by the end of this, this journey that we're on together, we pray that we will have moved closer to you, and not just to you, but closer to our neighbor and closer to ourselves. In the name of love, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.